Yeah, I think that makes it pretty clear what it will really take to make America great again. And I happen to be a fan of President Trump. I think it would be great if President Trump were our president again. But that's not going to solve the problem. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 147 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode, we will be breaking down the viral phrase made popular by the former president, Ronald Reagan, and then revived by former president Donald Trump, Make America Great Again. And our co-host for this episode is no stranger to the Removing Barriers podcast. MD, welcome back and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Great. Hi, this is Jay. MCG and I would like for you to help us remove barriers by going to removingbarriers.net and subscribing to receive all things Removing Barriers. If you'd like to take your efforts a bit further and help us keep the mics on, consider donating at removingbarriers.net slash donate. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. All right, MD, we're going to be breaking down the viral phrase, make America great again. But before we even go into that, I think it's important that we define what great means in this phrase. How would you define great in this phrase? Well, I suppose the simplest way to define it would be to go back to what, when I was a kid, made me think America was great. We had freedom of religion. Towns that I lived in as a child, my father was a Baptist preacher, and we got along with everyone. It didn't matter if they were Catholic. It didn't matter if they were Lutheran. It didn't matter if they were Jewish. They could be Muslim. It didn't matter. We got along. When we had a potluck dinner at our church, people of all faiths would come to visit. They didn't feel like they were intimidated, and we would tell them the gospel. There didn't seem to be any bitterness about that because we had a freedom. We knew we had a freedom. Even as a child, I knew I had the freedom to believe what I wanted to believe, to speak what I wanted to speak. I'm not sure we do that anymore, but I believe that makes America great. As I got a little older and the classes I took began to deal with the history of the United States and the Founding Fathers, I found many, many, many quotes from the Founding Fathers discussing that we could not even survive as a nation without relying on God. But they didn't say you have to be a Baptist. They didn't say you have to be a Catholic. They didn't say you have to be a Lutheran. You didn't say you have to be a Jew. You didn't have to be a Muslim. You didn't have to be a Buddhist. They only said we have to rely on God for guidance. And I think one of the things that gave our nation great underpinnings was that those men who founded our nation followed the tenets of what the Bible has to say. Some of them may not have believed in the God we believe in. They may not have believed in God the way we believe in God, but they followed the tenets of the Bible. So it was the founding document for our nation. A lot of people told me it's not. A lot of people have argued that our laws didn't come from the Bible. One thing that has always stopped people when they come to that is I ask them, well, if we're not a nation whose laws come from the Bible, then who says it's wrong to kill the guy next door to you who says something you don't want him to say. Where'd that come from? Because without some higher authority to give us moral guidance, I've too often seen people in America and in other nations where I've lived go completely away from any moral guidance at all. There has to be a higher authority. So I think one of the things that makes America great is the understanding that there is a higher authority to whom we are all responsible, no matter who we are, And yet, we are free to make choices about what we do, what we think, how we speak, and equally, we are free to pay the consequences of those choices. All right, before I go into my definition of what I think great means or what he should mean in that statement, what about those who would say, well, what authority there is that say that I shouldn't kill someone? One person told me society. Another person might say, you know, the English common law. But I've been at the door where one lady told me, it's society. Society tells me what's wrong and what's right. I would suggest to that that society is too changeable for me to want to live the 69 years I've lived and understand that the society in which I live tells me what's right and what's wrong. 
I've seen too many changes already. I've seen too many cycles going both ways, swinging to one extreme and back to another when the one that we went to didn't work. That's a good point. What I did said to her when she said that to me was, so why is it that you're telling me that what North Korea is doing in their society is wrong? Because if society dictates it, then you can't dictate North Korea society, nor can they dictate ours. They believe that this is right. This is morally right. And you might believe it's morally wrong, but... Carry that to an extreme and think about Pol Pot in Cambodia near the end of the Indochinese War, Vietnam War. I don't know what the last numbers were, but it was around 8.5 million Cambodians that he murdered by his direct authority. Was that right or wrong? It was his society. Yep. All right. So my definition for great, and I want to have like maybe like a working definition so that we can piggy off of it and go back. So I would say it means basically it stood out among the rest. Now, I don't mean that it's perfect. I don't mean that it's without blemish. But I mean that if you take some markers, and I have a bunch of them listed here that we probably going to go through, stuff like economic opportunities and freedoms, I think you mentioned that, founding values, military might, global influence, justice system, educational opportunities, using those markers, I'm sure we can come up with more as well. Does America stand out among the rest in terms of the nations? Maybe we can say, is it in the top five, top three to top five of nations that you look at that nation, you say, you know what, if you go to that country, you can have economical opportunities, you're going to have educational opportunities, you're going to have freedoms and stuff like that. Using those markers, again, we don't mean without blemish. We don't mean that is perfect, but we mean that among the rest, when you compare it, it stands out. What do you think about that definition? I think it's a good working definition. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we live up to it any longer, but only because I don't know whether we're in three to five percent of the top. I don't know whether we're in 15 percent, 20 percent. I was thinking on my way down here about If we're not still great in at least some minds, why is there such a flood of people coming in from South and Central America over an open border? Yep. Why do I have so many friends who were born and raised in Vietnam and lived through the takeover of Vietnam by the North and are now here and have served in the military here and are citizens of the United States and happy to be citizens of the United States? Why is my family here? I'm only a third-generation American. My family were Germans. Had my parents not been here, my father probably would have wound up serving Nazism. Not by choice. Instead, he served in the U.S. military here. I think we still are a great nation in that sense, but the question is, how great? Oh, that's true. All right, so I'm going to go through these. These are some stats I looked up. So in terms of economic opportunities, according to the World Economic Forum, Not the best group to get data from, but according to them, the top five countries that have the largest new business formation growth year over year, and this was in 2020, is the United Kingdom, United States, Australia, Germany, and Canada. According to US News, the best countries to start a career, the top five will be Germany, Canada, United States, Japan, and Switzerland. And according to US News again, the country with the best job market, top five again, is Germany, Canada, United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. So economic opportunities, the U.S. is in the top five. Not number one in any of them, but in the top five. And I think you made a good point there. Why is it that immigrants are coming across the border? Well, I'm an immigrant myself. And when I left my country for the U.S. for college, I remember saying to myself, I will never live in the United States. But I can honestly say I stayed only for economic opportunities because I was dating a young lady and that's probably more the reason why I stay more than anything else. But the honest truth is I would not be able to have the career I have in the Caribbean that I have here, just being a software developer or whatever the case may be. So definitely career economic opportunities is definitely big there. What were their metrics for measuring that? Is there any information on how they determined what country would be the best to start a business or to 
No, I didn't go into all the details. Most of it was more of like what legal barriers have to go through and stuff like that. Ease of starting the business. I guess suppose that would make sense because China certainly is a growing economy, but the restrictions and the requirements to be somehow married to or tied to the CCP would make it very difficult to have a thriving business there. So I right. suppose that's... And for what I understand, China is 80% communist, 20% capitalist, but the 20% that are capitalists produce 80% of their... Of the wealth in the country? Yep. So communism with Chinese characteristics is what they call it? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right, in terms of freedom, and this one is interesting because it's kind of hard to get the definition, what they mean by freedom. I'm not sure how they measure this one either. I guess if I would say freedom, you have to also look at the importance of owning firearms, being able to own and use firearms. And most countries are not. The U.S. definitely is in the top at number one when it comes to that firearm ownership. But it was very hard to find a ranking. According to one ranking, U.S. was ranked 58 in freedoms. What? No, I don't agree with that. Bald on its face. There's a lot of countries that were ahead of the U.S. in terms of freedom. Well, again, it has to be a definition of what is freedom. I don't know where they would put, for example, the U.K. in terms of definitions of freedom. But I spent a total of four weeks in the U.K., two weeks twice, and had conversations with Bobby's, the police. And I found that if, for example, I had a pocket knife that a Bobby laid over the palm of his hand, which is not a valid way to measure it. He's got a small hand. It's going to be a big knife. But he told me, and it was agreed to, if I say your knife is too big, I'll take it away from you and you can't do anything about it. I said, what if I protest? He said, you'll go to jail. Then you'll stand before a judge in the old Bailey and he'll stand with me. Where is the freedom? I know that in my work when I was in the Navy, We had a lot of things we could not say because they were classified, had many things we could say because they weren't classified. But in England during the Second World War and since, when they invoke the Official Secrets Act, the government says to you, you cannot say whatever, and it doesn't have to be anything of clear strategic importance. It has to be only what a politician says I don't want him saying. You don't have that right. And yet many people say that the UK is free. That's not freedom. It's been said by a lot of people here in America that the Second Amendment to the Constitution is what keeps the First Amendment viable. Mm -hmm. Our government should be afraid of the power of the people. I don't think it is very much, but it should be. And if it is, we will have the freedom to speak. When it doesn't care about the power of the people, because we have none, we'll be just like UK. You're not allowed to talk about that. And they'll put you in jail if you do. So I I don't know where they put the UK in that list, but I think it's critical when you talk about freedom to understand what they term freedom. And if I could take us back for a moment, one of the countries that was listed, I think listed as number either two or four, because I believe the US was number three in terms of business opportunity, rather of startups of new businesses, Mm -hmm. was Australia. I don't know if you're aware or not, but you cannot move to Australia without financial means in hand, which you can demonstrate to the government in perpetuity. In other words, you go to Australia, you have to bring a business with you. It might be a good place to start a business, but not when just to go there, you have to take a business with you. Yeah, I hear immigration in Australia is very tough. Well, there's a lot of people who want to go there. And I understand that, too, because I know people who live in Australia. I used to work with a fella who chose to live in Australia, even though when he answered a contract call from our company here in the United States, he had seven days to call in, choose to take the contract, and be here. But he lived in Australia with his family. Mm. He came to the United States probably seven or eight times a year. That's an expense. It's wearing on your body. But he loved Australia. So... I've never been there, but I guess it's a really nice place to live if the conditions there are what you want them to be. So I'm not putting Australia down by any means. I'm just saying that I think these metrics that are listed, I think Jay is right. It's really important to know how do they come to those metrics? Well, most of it, of course, uh, you see, I got something from the World Economic Forum. So, (laughs) you know, these metrics are probably more left wing kind of metrics, but I want to use them just to show, you know, what would people find if they just do an internet search? And check and say, hey, 
how does America rank in these things? These are the results that are going to come up. So in terms of freedom, that was, was a little bit hard. But I did find a report, as I said, and they ranked the U.S. at 58. But again, if you're not going to take firearm ownership as a mark of freedom, that might be a ding against the U.S. because we have the Second Amendment. Because most of the countries in Europe and all these countries are ranked in terms of freedom ahead of the U.S. And as you just said, a lot of those countries, you can't own firearms in a lot of those countries. So are they really free, as you see? Mm-hmm. Well, they're only as free as the government will allow them to be. And that leads me to the thought that maybe they're free today, but that's temporal. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen here with our government, I'm going to probably, I don't want to say this too loud because I don't want to go to jail for saying it. Nowadays, you surely can. Never mind that you can argue it in court and get out, but it, only if you're rich. We've seen our government go from a government that believes our Constitution, that staunchly supports our Constitution, that has that as a framework of right and wrong, in less than four years to a government where if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're wealthy, if you're politically connected, you're above any reproach from the law at all. And if you're not, you don't have to do anything wrong to be thrown under the jail. No, that's true. And I think that's the marker of losing our freedoms and I believe so. I guess also losing the greatness that America was founded upon. I believe that too. The next one I have is founding ideals or beliefs. So of course this one I can't get any stat on it, but correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think defining ideals or beliefs for America would be making a more perfect union, all men are created equal, we the people determine the government, a lasting constitution, democratic republic, and a Judeo Christian heritage. Founding ideals that make America great. I like that as a summary. I agree with you. In addition to those things that you mentioned, there are a lot of other influences that we can say played some role in some small way or another in the founding of the nation. We can never really get away from the fact that this nation is a derivative of or came from England. And so all of the things that were laid down in that country beforehand had some slight role to play, let's say the Magna Carta, for example. So, I mean, I'm not saying that we weren't established on a biblical foundation. I'm just saying that it wasn't just a biblical foundation because there was influence from the French Revolution as well. Rousseau had quite the influence as well. So there's more to it. Maybe perhaps that's a little bit of the yeast that has come to fruition that perhaps in some ways has contributed to some of the decay that we see in our institutions and in our country today. But those founding beliefs, it's going to be hard to try and determine which countries have the best ones because I can't think of a country that has a completely pure, singular set of beliefs or set of, well, yeah, I will just keep it at beliefs because it could be determined to be so many different things as their sole founding principle. The only one that I could think of is perhaps China. And look at them. We wouldn't want to be like them. Or perhaps North Korea, where it's all based on the lie that the Kim Jong, is it the, that entire family, family. the Kim family is somehow deity in that country. And that's the entire founding principle of the country. I suppose it depends. In our case, it's undeniable of the influence of biblical authority in our laws, in our institutions, in our structures, in our people. But at the same time, we can also say that There was yeast in the bread, if you would, that now I think we're coming to see the fruit of it in our day, and it's probably not really good fruit. Right. I've been uh, memorizing the book of Exodus, and it's interesting that when the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, it says the children of Israel left Egypt, and a great mixed multitude. So the first day out of Egypt, God tells them to encamp near Piakiroth, before En Gedi, between Migdal and the sea, I looked up what those names mean, and basically what he was telling them was, over in these cliffs, where the land behind you is the torturous canyons, the ocean in front of you, and Egypt's going to come right up the same path you followed, you're going to be stuck. They're going to think you're stuck. It's going to let me show, me, God, show my greatness. So they got there, and the children of Israel were told by Moses, Turn, encamp by P.A. Kairoth, that whole thing, here's the plan, here's what Pharaoh's going to say, here's what God's going to say, and the Bible says, and they did so, children of Israel. The very next verses talks about when they saw Pharaoh coming, the children of Israel cried to the Lord. The mixed multitude started talking about 
you brought us out here to die. We'd have been better in Egypt. We need to go back. We need to give up. We, there's your yeast. There's mm-hmm. your leavening. Mm-hmm. They didn't win. The leavening didn't win. And perhaps that's the biggest problem we have now is that we spend way too much time listening to a lot of people who are not even able to come to one voice. Think about it. If you tried today to follow all of the progressives' arguments about everything, the progressives would eat themselves because they can't agree. Republicans aren't doing any better. Not now. Conservatives aren't doing any better. Not now. But it used to be that at least the conservatives would come to one voice. Mm. Aren't you going to have that, though, in any country where there's a plurality? You're going to have that, right? Like, even if the country were 50% Christian, 50% Muslim, they would begin at a peaceful, perhaps maybe at a peaceful standing. But then as time goes on, the vectors would differentiate from each other so greatly that ultimately we'd end up perhaps going head to head. So if you have a group of people that don't have the same theological or spiritual underpinning, ultimately, isn't that what's going to happen? Yeah. If you establish clearly in the beginning, before there's any battles, what the rules are that we're all going to live by. Right. And then you hold to those. They're in writing. They're the standard. They're what we do. And if I deviate, you pull me back. If you deviate, I pull you back. We all follow those rules. They don't have to be a narrow, narrow hedge. They don't have to be a narrow canyon in our lives. But we can't get too far offline. If we get to the point where we hate someone so much we're willing to kill them, we're way offline. There's no question. And I think that's probably why America has lasted as long as it has. Because if you look back at our earliest history, coming off of those boats were people from every nation under the sun, fleeing from everything under the sun, from illness to monarchies that had gone bad, to monarchies that were good but the people wanted freedom, to people who wanted religious freedom. Coming off those boats was every kind of people under the sun. And they got along even though they disagreed. Go back and look at the Plymouth Colony, where for a period it was run by a very narrow sect of people. Everyone else suffered if they didn't toe the line. Well, that's not the rules we live by. That's not the allowances of freedom. So once we establish the freedom, we've been as a nation, what, 250 years now? Pretty close, coming up on it. Yeah, but the argument can be made what you just said. You know, if we have a document, the argument can be made that we had a document. We have a document, the Constitution, but yet we have a Supreme Court that you can basically predict how they're going to rule, and the prediction is not based upon the Constitution. The prediction is based upon their politics or who appoints them. So we do have the document, but we have a problem because then one thing we all would agree English is ambiguous. You know, you, there's so much things you can say in English that you can have double and triple meanings of unless you clearly explain yourself over and over and over and over. The Constitution of the United States is a very, very short document compared to even the Constitution of my country, where it's probably almost 100 pages or more. The Constitution of the United States is very, very short. And I agree that it's very powerful, but I wonder if that's the problem because it didn't break down the definitions of many, many things it says. And again, maybe they couldn't predict that we could have the internet and have all kind of lunatics on there saying things, but I don't know. Do you know what the biggest argument was in the U.S. Congress against writing the Bill of Rights? What? If you enumerate the Bill of Rights, if you list, this is a right, this is a right, this is down the line, Mm -hmm. someone will find a way to say, Ah, but in between those, that's not a right. Yep. And what a problem we had a little over a year ago, abortion. Sure. Found a previously unknown clause in the Constitution. It's not there. Well, what about separation of church and state? Yep. It's the separation, according to the Constitution, of the church from the authority of the state. It is not the separation that kicks the church out of the state. Right. And yet, what has society said. So I agree, but my point about the Bill of Rights was if you take a simple document and you proceed to try to explain it, I think you're much more likely to create bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper holes for people who are just looking for a hole to push you into, to go ahead and push you into. Well, that's true. And even other countries, like I mentioned mine with 100 pages of the Constitution, they're not better off anyway. (laughs) So... 
Anyways, it continues. You probably learned to read a little earlier than with a constitution like that because it takes you longer to get through it when you're a kid, right? Well, I've never read it. Well, I've read part of it. I've never read it the entirety. <laughs> so military might, another thing that will make uh, a country great, military might. And of course, the U.S. is in the top five. At least the U.S. is at number one in this one. U.S., you have Russia, you have China, you have India, which surprised me, and then you have the United Kingdom. Well, I think India is because of they have so many people, but those are the top five countries when it comes to military might. So it's not just military might in the sense of weaponry and vehicles and aircraft. It's also manpower. And that's what I'm guessing, because India is at four, China is at three. I think China and India has to do with the amount of people that yeah. they have in the military. They probably double the U.S. in terms of personnel. Russia... I believe it's probably partly technology and partly the amount of people they have. But of course, I think the U.S. is number one in military because the U.S. have the best toys. But you guys are former military, so you can tell me. But I'm not sure that military might is what makes U.S. number one in the military. It what is the fact is? that the military stands ready to defend the country against enemies foreign and domestic, according to our oath, and is not willing, the military is not willing, has an absolute edict against overthrowing our government. Rather, the military is the servant of the government. Mm -hmm. And clearly so. We're taught that from day one of military service. It's drilled into us. It's drummed into us. We are the servants of you who've never been in the military. That's mm -hmm. our job. And we know it. And I think that probably makes more difference if you don't have the technology, if you don't have the people willing to use the technology and knowing how to use it, if you don't have the people who are trained, if you don't have all of those things that make a mighty military, you're going to lose the first time you come up against a determined enemy. There's no question. But if your country says, this we will do, this we will not do, and another country says, oh, you are going to do what you just said you won't do, and the military says, you want to bet? A powerful military gives your country the willingness and the ability to stand up to the world and say, we go this far and no further. If you look at what's going on over in Israel right now, Hamas attacked Israel. ISIS wants to get involved. Hezbollah wants to get involved. All the other nations want to get involved. But every time they've gotten involved, Israel has come back. Now, Israel has a mighty, mighty God who said, these are my chosen people and I'm protecting them. That's a God I wouldn't want to go up against, no matter what. But if you think about it, Israel has a military willing, as a body of even civilians, to take up arms and defend. And anybody silly enough to take that on is good. Emperor Hirohito in Japan, Second World War, was told by his advisors after Pearl Harbor, we were still at great loss, great risk of losing in the Pacific entirely against Japan. And Emperor Hirohito was told by his advisors, we told you, don't wake that sleeping dog. Mm. Japan is not a military might today. There's a lot of U.S. military in Japan. And the Japanese people are happy to have them there for the most part. But they're not a military might. And they were willing to take on the whole world. So, again, having a powerful military does not make your military great. It's what drives your military. Yep. So then the United States is in trouble now then. Because from what I understand, a lot of the DEI inclusivity type ideologies have crept into the officer ranks. We're talking at war college. So the principles that make the American military great are beginning to crumble. Recruitment numbers are down. We see in a lot of our military leaders preoccupation with woke ideology, making sure that genders are represented even in its advertising. That's what they're championing now. So according to what you say about what makes a military great, America sounds like it's a little bit in trouble there. Do you know one of the biggest reasons we were in trouble when the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor? The fact that so much of our military leadership had never been to war. They'd lost track of what a military is about. And so they were politicians. They were about improving the world. They were about... It wasn't about transgenderism. We know that. But they were so distracted by so many things that had nothing to do with fighting the war. Now, what officers do we remember best from the Second World War who became 
those leading the battles that were most decisive. Patton, MacArthur, can't remember who was it went back to the Philippines. He said, I'll be back, and he was. I mean, pick the ones who were assigned to replace those who didn't know how to fight a war. So we're in that same situation now. The question is, would we be quick enough to move them out and get rid of them? And I think under our current regime, our current leadership, we would not. I don't think we would. Let me ask you this, though, then. We have been in a constant state of war since Vietnam. And you can make an argument against the industrial military machine. If we've been in a constant state of war since Vietnam, why is it the caliber, the quality of our leadership has declined in so many years? Is it a demoralization? Is it because the nation as a whole has turned away from the biblical principles? What do you think is happening there? I think it could be a large part that we've turned away from biblical principles, but I think it also is that when you say we're in a state of war, are we really, if— The nation-building type war. Bring it down to your neighborhood. If you have a disagreement with one neighbor who is just not willing to be a nice person, is that a state of war? No. Not really. It's a conflict, but it's not a state of war. What leadership do you have to have as a family to rise up to that? Exactly what you have. You don't have to have someone who's been to war, who knows how to use weapons of war, who knows tactics and battlefields, who knows what the enemy can do to him. Together, you two are very well able to deal with that on a daily basis and just continue on it. That's not war. Conflict, yes, but not war. War is when the entire nation becomes involved or large portions of the nation. Think about Vietnam. How long did it take for us as a nation to start talking about Vietnam as the Vietnam War rather than the Vietnam conflict, the Vietnam disagreement? It was called that. When I was a teenager, it was they would, nobody would call it a war. Nobody would even called it a conflict. It was a disagreement. And yet, an entire nation was at risk. And when the North overran the South, that entire nation was lost. But it wasn't our nation. It wasn't on our shores. It wasn't us. So it was never a war. So when MacArthur was put in place, when Stillwell was put in place in China, when you know, all those different soldiers, those different leadership who were very powerful, who were looked at, who guided, who, when they were put in place, it was because we were facing a war with Germany overrunning people we respected and had promised to care for. We were facing a war with Japan. I don't know if you knew it or not, but we were facing a war with Mexico because Japan, we intercepted messages between Japan and Maximilian in Mexico, who was a trumped up president. I don't mean President Trump trumped up. I mean, he jumped himself into position. Japan told Maximilian, if you'll open a third front against the south of the United States, we will give you everything south of Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma and all the way across the country. Who knows whether they would have done it or not? But he was certainly willing to try it. He was certainly willing to take it on until we told him through diplomatic channels, oh, by the way, we read your mail and you ain't doing it. And you don't want to face us if you think you're going to do it because you're a lot closer to us than Japan is and you're going to feel it a lot quicker than they are. But I mean, the point is, we were, as a nation, at war. We haven't been. Even in Vietnam, we really weren't, as a nation, at war. Mm. All right, so the next one I have in terms of pointers that U.S. has to be in the top five, top three, top five to make it great, is global influence. And I think this one was hard to find any clear data on, but this one is a no-brainer as well. I think the U.S. is the one country that exports most of its influence and its politics and most of its culture to the rest of the world. Growing up outside of the U.S. and then now living in the U.S., most Americans don't know swat about the rest of the world. But the rest of the world know a lot more about America than America know about the rest of the world. And of course, we also have the phrase that America sneeze, the Caribbean will catch the cold. I think we see that the entire West probably catch the cold when the U.S. sneeze as well. So I think that's a no-brainer. Of course, we have Black Lives Matter as well that basically a U.S. social issues basically spread. Become global. Globally. Very quickly, yeah. So we see definitely that the U.S. when it comes to global influence for good or for bad, the U.S. definitely spread their politics and their culture. Justice system. This one was interesting. The U.S. again did not rank in the top five when it comes to justice system. According to nomad capitalists, Denmark is at number one, Norway, number two, Finland, number three, 
Sweden at four and the Netherlands at five when it comes to the justice system. Five of the arguably least influential and weakest nations in the world. And homogenous nations in the world, too. That also, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But this one, according to the legal scoops, the countries with the most well-developed legal system. So this one is the one who have the best legal system, the one with the, the most well-developed legal system will be the United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, and number four will be the United States and then Canada. I sure would like to know how they came about those. I would too. I wouldn't, yeah. personally, I wouldn't necessarily argue that the positions are wrong, but I would like to know what their rationale was. I don't know if the positions are wrong neither, but I think when it comes to legal and of course, the first one was according to Norbert Capitalist, if you want to look it up. Second one is by the legal scoops. I think when they talk about the best legal system, I'm imagining they're talking about, you know, how much people are in prison, how easy it is to be defended and all that stuff. And then when they're talking about the most well-developed legal system, it has to do with processes, I guess, in terms of in the U.S., you know, it is you're innocent until proven guilty. And I would imagine it's the same for the United Kingdom. So you have United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, and then the United States, and then Canada as the well most developed. And of course, those nations are probably older too. So they probably have a lot of time to hone their legal system. So anyways, the U.S. was not in the top five for the best, but in the top five for the most developed. Educational opportunities. I was surprised the U.S. is ranked at number one in this one. Countries with the highest rank according to World Population Review. It's a, well, the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, Canada, and France. Why were you surprised? I thought China would be in there, and I thought the U.S. would not be in at number one. I'm saying that the U.S. has a good educational system, but I didn't expect China not to be in there, especially with some data I've seen coming out in terms of math scores and stuff like that. China was at the number. But I guess if you break it down by subjects, the U.S. might be lower in certain areas, but if you just say educational opportunities... At the risk of sounding at least disingenuous, considering China sending so many students to the United States to study, I'm not sure I'm surprised that the United States is ranked higher than China for educational opportunity. But particularly if one of the questions asked to come to that conclusion is, from whence to whence do students travel? China sends a huge number of students to the United States. There are a lot of students, Chinese students in the United States, who are here because they want to be, not because the Communist Party sent them. Right. Now, how much authority the Communist Party can now exert over them, I don't know, but I suspect it's pretty considerable. But the question would have to be, okay, if China were indeed a better educational system, why would we not go there and why would they come here? Well, one is because it could go back to freedom, and two— English is a lot easier to learn than Chinese or Mandarin or whatever they speak. I wouldn't argue that. I've never tried to learn Chinese. I had a friend who did, and he was incredibly good at languages. But think about it, though. I think the language that is most widely spoken is Mandarin or Chinese or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And then the next one would be Spanish. But the language that is mostly learned, I think, is English. Because English if, is the language of commerce, isn't it? I was going right. to say, but I think that's the worldwide influence America has exactly. had for so many decades, maybe centuries. But not only that, how much of the world did the UK colonize? More than half? Yeah, they did say that the sun doesn't they set They did, the but Empire. then since the people that we know in the UK joke about two nations separated by a common language, mm -hmm. you know, we both speak English, but we don't speak it the same way. Why would worldwide... Every air traffic controller around the entire world, all air traffic business is conducted in American English. Well, I don't know if he's conducted American English. Well, I, but... I can tell you that it is. I used to work for the FAA, and I did a lot of software testing for the FAA. Maybe it's because aircraft technology originated definitely. here. Maybe that's why. The Wright brothers. Maybe it's because aircraft well, technology think about, originated but here. But think about Blériot, who was French. Think about, there were some English inventors. The thing is, we tend to think that we invented it first. Maybe we did by moments. But there were people all around the world who surely wanted to have wings. And they were working on it. So maybe that's true. And maybe it's that we perfected commercialism in aircraft first. I don't know. It's something that would have to be looked into to be able to make a decision about that before I'd take an opinion on it. Mm. 
I would say though, I think most of the world don't speak American English. Like I would say I don't speak American English. But this is something I observe because a lot of countries that you will say, even a lot of countries in Africa, you will say, hey, what language do you speak? Most of them will speak their native language and native dialects. But a lot of them also, along with that, also speak English because they were formerly colonized by the British. But Americans would look at them and say, hey, yeah, they don't speak English. Even India. A lot of people in India speak English yep. because they were formerly colonized by the British. But Japan was never colonized by the British or America. Right. But almost every Japanese person I have ever met in my life either speaks or is learning to speak English. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, they learn it in their grade schools now. Fifty years ago when we were in Japan, we taught English. And the interesting thing is that someone who could sit and just monitor the Japanese people discussing something in English and correct their discussion could make the equivalent at the time of $15 per student per hour. And they didn't want your class to be 10 people. They wanted your class to be 30 people. Oh, wow. If you're in the military, you couldn't convert those yen to American dollars. So it wasn't as good as it might sound. But you could buy nearly anything in Japan for the amount of money you could make with a few hours of work in a week as an English teacher. Yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons why maybe the Chinese are coming because it's way easier for the Chinese. As you said, they start learning it as a kid, English. Most of Americans are not trying to learn Mandarin or Chinese or anything. Well, no, and I was also going to say, when we were in Japan, I had a friend who was, he studied for the ministry here in the United States. In fact, he spent eight years, he was from Okinawa, an Okinawa native. But he spent eight years studying here in various courses in college before he became a pastor over in Japan. And I was talking to Tamiyo once about kanji, which is the pictorial language in Japan. And he said that no one ever learns kanji. They learn words, they learn pictograms, they learn sentences in kanji. But kanji is constantly changing, continually, never settles down. So I asked him, well, how many characters are there in kanji? And he said, the last I heard was about four years ago when there were around 95,000. Oh, wow. Kanji, they don't use the same name for it in China, but it is a common language between the two nations. Doesn't always mean the same thing. And the weird thing is that as complex and convoluted as kanji is, I can actually read a little bit of kanji because it makes sense. It's logical. But yeah, I would say that makes it one of the hardest languages in the whole world to learn. Right. Yep. I'm surprised, though, when you were reading what position the United States was for all of these different markers. I was expecting the U.S. to be number one, number one, number one, number one. But it sounds like, by any measure, Germany could be the greatest nation in the world, too, or whatever other country that was listed, too. So well, then using those definitions, in what ways is America great? Yeah, what I think about it, because, as you mentioned, global influence, definitely, you see, the U.S. is at number one, economic opportunities, top five, education opportunities, top five, certain area of justice system, military might, founding ideals and beliefs. But in some others, the U.S. is not even in the top 10. So, you know, but again, we have to have some sort of objective measurement to say for our definition of great, because if we want to make America great again, the term again implies that it's no longer. And then it also implies that at one point, it was also great. So I guess you So let's think about one other thing. When I was a kid, and I'm still not very diplomatic, but when I was a kid, I was known for not being diplomatic. I said many things that really irritated people. And one of the things I said was that America was the absolute greatest. Mm -hmm. And all those other nations that didn't think so, who cares about their opinions? So you think it's just criticism? No, I think I'm probably a little more diplomatic than that now. I do care what they think. But I do believe that when we say America is great, we say make America great again. We say America was great. So when was it great? It's our view from here in America. Because I know German people, people in Germany that I've talked to, friends of mine, family that we still have over there, who are just irritated out the ears by us always thinking America is so great because they think Germany is the greatest. I suspect their reactions to those poll numbers you were listing would probably be very similar to ours. No, we're in number one. Everywhere we're in number Well, okay, because that's your country. You love your country. I think that's probably one of the things that makes America great. So when was it great, though? When was it great? Yeah, because if this phrase is make America great again, it's no longer great, so we want to return to that. So when was America great? Well, it doesn't flow off the lips as well, but I would say make America as great again 
Yeah, it's, what is that, M-A-A-G-A. Like I said, it doesn't flow off the mm-hmm. lips as well. I still think America is great. Okay. I personally do. But isn't that one of the wonderful things about America? You might not agree with me, and it's okay. We don't have to come to fisticuffs over. We don't have to yell at each other about it. We can just disagree if we want to disagree. And I'm not saying you don't think it is. I'm just saying you have that right if you do. Right, but the thing is, when you look at the phrase, and I think a lot of people were taken aback by the phrase when Donald Trump had it back in 2016, and now in 2023, he's running on it again. We're just going off the obvious questions. When would you say America was great? Because that's what the phrase is implying, that America was great at one point. And Donald Trump is saying, and I can make it now, great again. Right. If we take it as an absolute, I think America was great until 12 years ago. So before the Obama administration? We started going downhill. <laughs> you know, I'm not being diplomatic. I'm not being nice. I'm certainly not being woke. But yes. On the other hand, I'm 69 years old. I've seen a lot of presidents. I've seen a lot of administrations go by. And I can tell you, there were a lot of them that I thought were absolutely ludicrous, ridiculous, stupid, bad. There were more of them that I thought were absolutely wonderful. But honestly, until the last 12 years, I thought probably Jimmy Carter was one of the worst, most ineffectual presidents we ever had. I would ask you who have taken his place. We all well, know the answer like to that said, question. Before the last 12 years. <laughs> and I don't even really know who the president is right now. I don't believe Mr. Biden is running the White House. All right, we'll take a break. I'll be right back. You're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We're sitting down with MD, and we're talking about the viral phrase, Make America Great Again. We'll be right back. Do you have the desire to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints? Answers in Genesis can help. They provide biblically sound books, CDs, DVDs, homeschooling materials, VBS materials, online courses, digital downloads, and The Answers Magazine, and more. Plus, tickets to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Go to The Answers Bookstore by clicking the link in the description section below so you too can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in you. Hi, this is Jay. MCG and I would like for you to help us remove barriers by going to removingbarriers.net and subscribing to receive all things Removing Barriers. If you'd like to take your efforts a bit further and help us keep the mics on, consider donating at removingbarriers.net slash donate. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. Okay, if America was once great, was it only great for some and not all? Or was it great for everyone? What's your thought on that? I absolutely think there have always been dichotomies between those for whom it was great and those for whom it was not. I grew up in California before California went crazy. And one of the things we had to study in order to graduate eighth grade in California was an entire year of detailed history of California, warts and all. Anybody ever heard the term Chinese laundry? Mm -mm. They were all over California. In the old days, in the days of the frontier west, in the days of the gold miners, the gold rush, you couldn't get your laundry done by anybody but the Chinese, but the Chinese could not get any other job. Mm. Is that segregation? Sure it is. Anybody hear the term, your cousin Jack? No, you find these terms. Every railroad operation, laying rail, had someone, a Welshman from the mines, named Jack. Mm. He was the cousin of the guy who was on the team before him. So every Welshman who came over the horizon and was looking for work on a railroad-laying job always asked the foreman, hey, you got room for my cousin Jack? That was the joke. (laughs) But you wanted to see people who lived a rough life, who lived a really deprived life? Railroad people. Welshmen. Almost always. Yeah, it's always been. There have always been people who had to work up from the bottom to get anywhere. Always. It hasn't always been, yeah, you can start there and rise. Sometimes it was, you can start there and stay right there forever. Mm. It's not right. It's wrong. But as one of my sons said when he was about 15 years old and he and I were having one of our endless debates about politics, politics is great for running a country. It's the people that mess it up. Out of the mouths of babes. I think one of the things is, I'm just going off of some accusations that Donald Trump got with this phrase, even though if you dug into history, 
he wasn't original to him. He basically stole Ronald Reagan's phrase. I think Ronald Reagan said... He said, let's make America great again. Right. And then Donald Trump dropped the let's and said, make America great again. And one of the backlash he got, it was that, yeah, was it only great for some? But also a lot of black folks look and say, well, America has never been great for me, which, of course, I disagree with. But they look back and say, OK, well, if you go back to the 18s, we had segregation, we had Jim Crow redlining, the 17s, pretty much the same. The 60s, we had LBJ and all the stuff that he basically divorced your husband and married the state. And again, if you look at the stats, because, of course, if you ask Larry Elder and the stats that he always give, before the 60s, the marriage rate and the rate of birth into a married household for black kids were about 75%. Now it's flipped. It's 75% or plus that are married without being into a household with a father and a mother are married. But a lot of black folks, especially those on the left, would argue that America has never been great for them. They have never been able to be equal in their country. And that's why they take exception to the phrase, make America great again. Because when you ask them, when was America great? A lot of folks would point back to the 50s and the 60s and stuff like that. And if you look at it, I normally watch old television shows. So I'll watch something like the Andy Griffith show or Goma Pal, USMC, or stuff like that. And if you look at just the acting and the shows back then compared to what they are today, I guess an argument can be made even morally, even though those shows, I won't necessarily hold them up for their morality. But if you look at them compared to what we're seeing on TV today, there were some semblance of, if you want to call it greatness, that we don't see anymore. Because today it's outright vulgarity on the TV compared mm-hmm. to what you will see in the black and white shows of the Andy Griffith. And if you want to come to the 70s and the early 80s, the Little House and the Peary type shows, we don't have those today. A lot of Christians would even look at those shows and say, well, yeah, they're not clean. But when you compare them to, you know, I don't watch TV, but when you compare them to what we are seeing today, you know, let's call it keeping up with the Kardashians, you know. Yeah. Eastern Shore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I was in a giant grocery store today and they were playing Motown, but they're also playing Creedence Clearwater Revival, which if you're old enough, you remember what that was. They were really in vogue when I was in high school. They were playing a lot of those things that were 70s. And I looked over and 15 feet from me, there was a, a black lady my age. She worked in the store. And she was singing along. And I started singing along. And we had a great conversation. You were boogieing? No, just singing. I wasn't boogieing. Neither was she, really, although she was doing a little more moving than I was. But we were was singing songs that we knew from when, and it was really interesting because her whole view of her life history, same age mine, those times you're talking about, was by and large pretty positive. But she had a moral upbringing, and she had a moral view. She had a view of a God who provides, and a world that's not perfect, but because her God is in charge, she doesn't have to worry about that. Yeah, so let me ask, what happened? Because now if you say, make America great again, it was great once, what happened? I think we started downhill clear back in the 60s and 70s when we started saying, well, being married isn't important. Being faithful to your mate isn't important. If it feels good, do it. And if you could do with drugs, had to do with illicit sex, and it would do with immorality. And I don't think it even really started in the 60s because my mother was working with army wives when my father was being shipped overseas in 1937, 38. But she had already been working with them when they were first in the ministry when he was, what, it was like 1927, 28. And she would never tell us as kids what the things were that she heard in the ladies' rooms when they were talking. But she said, I got to tell you, the conversations you hear in school today, they're earlier, they're younger in life, but they're not different than what these 17 and 18 and 19-year-old women were talking about in the 20s, in the 30s. Mm. So I think what happened was the morality has always been an issue and the pushback and trying to push the boundaries and trying to break the... It's always been an issue, but it became much more open when we as a society began to accept it as, yeah, talk about it all you want, 
Yeah, it's okay even in polite society. Yeah, snicker, 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 it's okay. Well, I mean, after a while, you get to the point where you don't care anymore. Yeah, when it's uh, become accepted, you know, especially the rise of the internet. <laughs> it accelerated the whole mess. Yep. It really did. Yeah, when I think about what happened, though, I think about Judges chapter 2, verse 10, where the Bible says, And also, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation which after them, God. which knew not the Lord, nor yep. did the works which he had done for Israel. You ask what happened? I think there arose a generation, as you just said, that did not know the Lord. If you go back to all the stuff you talk about there, you know the Bible talking about that the lady should be shamefaced there, I think the King James Version used. Mm -hmm. I guess the definition there is being easily ashamed. In other words, somewhat shy or somewhat reserved kind of thing. I don't want to read into the Bible, but... Whose beauty let it not be in the broiding of their hair right. or their jewelry. Yeah, so their beauty is in their morality. Their beauty is in their emotional stability in the face of morality. Right, but also is the fact that they wouldn't do anything to be ashamed. But today, I think we have lost that morality, lost that sense of being ashamed of certain things. People put any and everything on the internet. They will say any and anything in polite company. Look at the filth that's out there today. I know, yeah. yeah. You're no longer ashamed of these things. Well, and go back to the Old Testament and the language of the Old Testament where it says that you are not to uncover your father's nakedness. You're not to uncover your mother's nakedness, the nakedness of your father's sister. I looked up what that meant. I thought, uncover their nakedness. I mean, they're dressed. Well, actually, it's to bring them shame. Mm -hmm. Uncovering their nakedness is uncovering that which would bring them shame. Yeah, we have lost that completely. Absolutely. The arose the generation did not know the Lord. We're no longer ashamed of sin. We're no longer ashamed of the filth that's out there. A generation that does not know the Lord. I like what, I think this was a French philosopher, and his name, Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, yeah. And he says, well, Cornelius notes that, he might not be the one who said it, but it's mostly attributed to him. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her public school system and her institutions of learning, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And I think D. Tuckerville hit the nail on the head right there because what happened, as we say in here, I think that the churches, the Christians have lost that flame. We're not evangelizing the way we should and all those things. And because of that, the greatness of America is weaning. And I willfully left the spiritual aspect out of when I would go to the list of possible things that could make America great, because you're not going to find statistics on that. The worldly internet is not going to tell you stuff like that. And I didn't want to put that in. But when I think about what happened, and you look at from generation to generation to generation. I think Kenham has some stats out there on this. Every generation attends church less. If you want to go, you are the baby boomer, then you have Generation X, and then you have the millennials, and then you have Gen C, then you have Gen Alpha. All the generations after that, your generation is probably the last generation that have majority of the folks that grew up in church that are still in church. Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. All of them have less than 50%. And Gen Z, I think it's like 20% of them that are in churches. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen with my kids' generation being Generation Alpha? If what we are seeing today with the Gen Zs, where a high percentage of them are classifying themselves as being some member of the 2S LGBTQIA movement, it's going to be even smaller for Generation Alpha if something doesn't happen. And Alexi D. Tuckerville said, hey, she's great because she's good. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So what happened? The thing I noticed in hearing what he had to say was the parallel to Ecclesiastes. 
as king, he sought for so many things. Yep. And it was never the thing that was right. It was never the thing that was good. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that the sole job of man, the sole goal of man, has to be to please God. Yep. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandment. Yep. For that is the whole yep. duty of man. And then in the New Testament, there's reference to Christians as the salt of the earth. And yep. then there's the statement, if the salt have lost his saltness, of what good is it? Yep. So there you have, the salt has lost his saltness. Yep. John Calvin, I don't think any of us here are Calvinists, but he said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. He can take that back to Proverbs. Yep. Because Proverbs speaks specifically of that. Yeah, I think that makes it pretty clear what it will really take to make America great again. And I happen to be a fan of President Trump. I think it would be great if President Trump were our president again. But that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, that's not going to make America great. Choose any politician, any body of politicians, no matter where they stand, no matter what they are. Even if they stand for God as a body, the politicians aren't going to make America great again. It's going to be, well, what does the Bible say? But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. Where do we go from there? If we want America to be great again, and I believe America was great, it's going to take prayer. It's going to take standing firm in the light of pushback. It's going to take being willing to say, this far, no farther. You have your right to your opinion, but you can't force nor make me embrace your opinion if it goes against God's word. Yeah, and I'm glad you caught that verse because, you know, that's 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. But a friend of mine, when I was thinking about this topic, I reached out to him just to find out what he thinks about it. And he preached a message from Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, and he entitled it The Barrenness of the Land. And I'm just going to read Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. He says, If I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, then verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and will heal their land. And the friend said, hey, the barrenness of the land. His premise, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he seemed like he was saying here that before we're going to fall to our knees and pray and seek God's face, the Lord allowed them to see the barrenness of the land in terms of the locusts, no rain, the pestilence that come. I wonder if right now the Lord is saying, okay, Christians, look at the barrenness of the land. Because America, we tend to be caught up in the fact that, hey, we are great. It's the best country in the world to live. And whether you believe that or not, if you don't see the barrenness of the land, and that's why we do so many episodes based on cultural issues. Because if you look at what is going on in our schools, the rise of the LGBTQIA, what's going on in our government, the corruption in this country, if we don't see the barrenness of the land and realize, hey, we need to fall on our knees and seek the Lord's face, America's not going to be great again. I'm with you. Because I said earlier that I'm memorizing the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. You know, I always get a much clearer vision of what the book is actually saying when I'm going through it verse by verse by verse and memorizing it. It's a process and it takes a lot of time. But I understand so much more than I ever understood. And one of the things that's really fascinating is Moses standing in front of Pharaoh early on. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to worship the Lord. Okay, well, that was early on. Because not long after that, Moses realizes that ain't happening. This guy's a serial liar. He's going to keep lying. And it's up to God to do the work. And he can see it in the way Moses deals with him. So you look at Pharaoh and you realize that the first things that happened to Pharaoh were just kind of demonstrations of what God could do. They didn't really fit, didn't really bother him all that much. They weren't all that big a deal. When he got down to the locusts eating up everything in the land, he said, I have sinned against you and against your God. He says, go ahead and treat the Lord that he'll take away from me this death only. I mean, he was beginning to feel it. He was beginning to pinch. It took all the way until the firstborn of every man and animal in the nation of Egypt died in one night before Pharaoh finally said, whoops, now I know. And we don't have his excuse. He was a pagan. He thought he was God. We don't think we're God. I hope we don't. I know you two don't. I know I don't. We don't have his excuse. But you're absolutely right. I think what it's going to come down to is at some point, we are finally going to see 
it barren enough because it's going to affect us enough as a nation that we're going to turn around and we're going to say, what have we wrought? Yep. Yep. I will say we have lost several generations at this point. Another verse, there was a generation that did not know the Lord. I think at this point, there are generations in the U.S. that do not know the Lord. And I'm going back, as I said, I think the last generation you can see on a whole is probably your generation. Generation X, millennials, and Generation Z, I will say, on a whole, because I think that verse is talking to the nation of Israel and not individual itself. On a whole, we have lost several generations. And I think it's a beck and call for Christians to evangelize, to go there and to reach your Jerusalem, right in the corner that you are in, because if you haven't seen the barrenness of the land at this point, I will say you're probably not going to see it ever, because at this point, we are barren. Mm -hmm. Anyways, MD. Thank you so much for joining us on the Removing Barriers podcast. Thank you for inviting me. As always, it's been very enjoyable. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. Did you know that you could find us on Twitter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, and Reddit? Go to removingbarriers.net slash contact and like and follow us on social media. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us, to support this podcast or to learn more about Removing Barriers, go to removingbarriers.net. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.